You are listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to a new series called Brains and Machines that will provide a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this first episode, EE Times regular Dr. Sonny Baines talks to Professor Andre von Scheich from Western Sydney University. You'll find out about the first successful neuromorphic consumer product, which came out less recently than you might think, how event cameras are being used to look at the night sky, and a huge new FPGA-based neuromorphic simulator that's currently in the works. First, today's EE Times current highlights. Global Chips Act's open debate about best way forward. Industry observers generally agree that Global Chips Act's present an opportunity to accelerate wide-scale innovation in the chip industry. Some experts, however, are concerned about what they call the law's protectionist overtones and its global effects. ARM IPO faces serious difficulties, observers say. Experts see poor prospects for ARM's planned IPO, in part because they believe the British chip designer is overvalued, as well as the existential threat RISC-V poses to ARM's long-term adoption. New Silicon Labs platform chases big AIML compute gain. Silicon Labs announced its Series 3 platform last week, which claims to offer massive performance improvements for AIML workloads. The new platform will move to a 22-nanometer process technology mode, and leverage NVM tech and off-the-shelf IP blocks. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sunny is interviewing André von Seig, professor and director of the International Centre for Neuromorphic Systems at Western Sydney University in Australia. After the interview, we'll be discussing its ideas with Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. That's right. Thanks, Julia. André is an electrical engineer who's been working with neuromorphic engineering since the early 1990s and was part of the first generation to receive his doctorate in the subject from the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. As well as neuromorphic stuff, André is also interested in bioelectronics and neuroscience. There are links to his work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I caught up with Andre at this year's Capocaccia Workshop Towards Neuromorphic Intelligence in Sardinia, Italy. Andre von Scheich, welcome to Brains and Machines. Can you start by telling us what is your technical background and how did you get into this field? Pleasure talking to you, Sonny. My technical background is integrated circuit design, which I studied as an undergrad at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And I got into the field as an undergrad, I got very interested in neural networks, and actually my very first paper is about feed-forward neural networks and limits to the fault tolerance of neural networks. But then towards the end of the 80s, which is when I was doing this, the neural networks field took a big dive where all the interest stopped in the field, or a large part of the interest stopped in the field. And given the background in integrated circuit design too, got very interested in neuromorphic engineering and it ended up coinciding with my first job that I took at the Centre Suisse d'Electronique et Microtechnique, CSEM in Switzerland. And that was doing 
circuit design, very much inspired by biology and neural systems in biology. So that's how I got in the field. What's your definition of neuromorphic engineering and has it changed since you got involved with the field back in the, what, in the late 80s? Yes, it's definitely changed over time. Back then, it was very much an integrated circuit design research field. Started by Carver Mead looking at the parallels between transistors when used in the subthreshold uh, region and ion channels in biology and in neural systems and trying to explore those parallels. Over time, it has much more become a field inspired by neural computation in biological systems and trying to implement those in any engineering way we can, basically. Now, you had early success with a motion detector that was used in trackballs and in mice. Can you say a little bit about that project? Sure. So that was an interesting project. It's the first neuromorphic engineering product, in a, in a way. Logitech at the time uh, was doing trackballs, and I don't know if you remember, but all computer mice and trackballs had these little wheels in them that the ball touched and you would rotate the ball with a trackball or you'd move the mouse and the ball would rotate. And you had to keep opening them and cleaning the wheels, scraping the gunk off. Laptops back then also had little trackballs in them and the curvature of those balls is much higher and you're touching it with your finger so they would get greasier. So those trackballs never really worked very well. You had to keep cleaning them. And Logitech came to where I was working at the time, CSCM in Switzerland, and said, can you make a sensor that looks at the ball so we don't have any mechanical parts touching it that need to monitor how the ball is rotating. Just look at the ball, we'll put random dots on it, and then we can um, extract the motion of the ball that way. And that's how the project started. I said, we'll see what we can do. And I took inspiration from Reichardt motion detectors based on the fly's eye and implemented a chip about three versions, three generations, basically over two years, till we got to the motion detector that Logitech used. It came on the market in 1994. And interestingly, you can still buy trackballs from Logitech that use the same chip as in 1994. So that's a nearly 30-year runtime of that chip. That's fantastic. And it is a genuinely neuromorphic project because it's... It's, it's inspired by, by fly motion detection, yeah. So, it, it, and that's what was my interest when I started at CSEM was visual motion detection. So. And was it an analog circuit design or was it a digital... It was mixed mode, the implementation. So each pixel in, on the chip has analog front-end processing to detect the light in each pixel and, and amplify it. Then there is edge detection between neighboring pixels and the edges are digital events. We operate on these edges to compare between the previous frame and the current frame. So it's frame-based where the, the uh, frame rate can be controlled by the microprocessor. So it can be adapted to the speed of the trackball. And then there is voting of each pixel to say whether they saw a leftward motion or a rightward motion, upwards, downwards. And that voting is done in an analog fashion again with currents because it's very easy to sum the currents. And then there is another analog to digital conversion on the chip that also does the division of the currents to figure out whether the 
global motion was in X or Y, what the direction was, and that then gives a, an output to the computer. Another vision-based project you've been working on is Astrocyte. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and what it was doing and how it works? So that's much more recent, yes. Yeah, so that came about through work by Associate Professor Gregory Cohen in my lab. He's put an event-based camera on the back of a telescope, started looking at the, the sky just to try and what could we see and what would work. So event cameras are cameras where each pixel has specialized circuitry in it, not just to observe the light, but to make a decision on whether the amount of light falling on that pixel has changed by a certain percentage. So it's a temporal contrast detector. Each pixel does that independently, and it can generate two types of events. It got brighter by a set percentage, or it got darker by a set percentage. And that's the operation that these cameras do. You can control the set percentage for getting brighter and darker separately. Um, typically, you try and keep that fairly symmetrical so that you get as many brighter events as getting darker events. So these cameras ignore background. Anything that's stationary in their field of view will not generate any events other than maybe through some background noise. And you only get events where things change, which is at the edges of objects that move if the camera is stationary. And in one of the very first recordings, something flew through that we didn't expect and we couldn't identify that happened to be a satellite. From that, we started looking at, can we track satellites with it? What can we do with these, these event-based cameras? And a big advantage of tracking them with the event-based cameras is because it's a non-integrating camera. You don't have a exposure time where you expose the frame to light, integrate all the photons that you get, and then make a, a measurement. Uh, with the event-based cameras, you're responding to instantaneous changes in, in light intensity. You can operate while things are moving much better. So you're much more robust to the camera itself moving or satellite motion relative to the camera, to the field of view. So we can keep using these cameras while they are moving. And that gave us a lot more flexibility also in what telescopes we use. So we put these telescopes in shipping containers on a, on a lift, basically. So there's a sliding roof. A telescope lifts out of the container, is on a robotic mount that can point the telescope everywhere we, we want it to point to. And then we do the recordings on that. It's nowhere near as stable as standard astronomical telescopes. So they, they have to be on a big concrete platform in a big building generally to get really stable images. And that's how people do um, astronomical photography and look at nebula and things like that, where they can integrate light over a long time. So that has several advantages for us, is then we can be much more flexible in shipping containers. We can put the shipping containers anywhere in the world and operate within 24 hours if we need to. And tr we don't have to stop or keep an object still in the field of view while we're recording. So we can do lots of objects in one night and track these satellites. Now, I didn't realize when we started this project that tracking satellites was such a big deal, but they are still subject to solar winds and things like that, particularly the ones that are in lower Earth orbit, but even the ones that are in geostationary orbit, which is about 36,000 kilometers away, they can move. They have propulsion 
on board so they can adjust their orbit as well. And if you don't keep track of where the satellites are and update your orbit prediction, orbits can be quite wrong, the predictions that you have for the orbits, within 24 hours. And that then means that you're looking at the sky through a straw. If you're looking in the wrong position, you're not going to see it. So it's very important to keep track of that. And as it gets busier and busier up there, it's very important to know what's where. So this is now something that is going to be commercially spun out of the university. We've been working on this project for about four years in the lab. And this year it will become a company spun out of Western Sydney University to run this project. More recently, you've been working on a very ambitious project to build large neural simulators using FPGAs. So can you start by telling us what you hope to achieve with this project? And then I'll ask you a little bit more about how it works. Sure. What I'm trying to achieve with this project is a similar enabling technology as GPUs were for neural networks when beginning, I mentioned neural networks uh, tanking in the 90s, just as I wanted to start on it and coming back when GPUs made it possible to simulate really large deep neural networks in a reasonable amount of time. Now, problem for spiking neural networks, which is what we're interested in at, at the moment, because brains are spiking neural networks, is that they are terrible to simulate on a computer. It's very slow to do large networks. And so I want to create a technology that enables you to simulate these large-scale spiking neural networks in a reasonable amount of time. And I want to do it in such a way that we don't build our own chips for this, but that we use commercial hardware instead. Because similar to the GPU was not developed for neural networks. It was a technology that was commercially done for graphical processing on computers. FPGAs reconfigurable hardware is another commercial technology that's being used for various applications. And one application that we think it's good for is simulating spiking neural networks. The advantage of using commercial technology is that we don't have to develop our own chips in a small university research group where you can maybe do one generation of chip every so many years. Some of the other groups around the world that are doing spiking neural network accelerators they're building their own chip, and you're seeing that going from generation one to generation two takes typically five, six years to, to do that. So that's a very slow iteration. And my contention is that we don't yet know what it is exactly that we want on these hardware systems, on these accelerators. What neural model do we need? What plasticity model? What connectivity patterns? That should still be open. So. The advantage of FPGAs is that we can reconfigure it, so it can be very flexible. We'll start with an initial design, but then that design can be iterated, and it will be open sourced as well. So anybody in the world will be able to work with the machine, but also add things to it if we think we need it. That's really interesting. One of the reasons that people build all these chips is because they want the spiking to be inherent. So presumably you're simulating spiking in these uh, FPGA-based systems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And we use time multiplexing to take advantage of the fact that the silicon is so much faster than uh, biology in terms of time constants of operations. Neurons, the 
update rate, typically you can get away with about a millisecond or maybe 100 microseconds if you want to be a bit faster, but you don't have to go faster than that to update a neurons equation and, and do pretty well. Silicon obviously can operate at gigahertz update rates these days. So if you build an electronic neural network where you do it analogly and every neuron is implemented, you have to slow it down so that it matches biological timescales, if that is what you are trying to simulate. You could do an approach where you want to go faster than real-time and, and simulate neural networks much faster than real-time. But if you want to stick it to interact with the real world on tasks that we do in the real world, then you want to do it on timescales that we do it in the real world. So you need these timescales to match. So with the FPGAs, we can time multiplex, and that then means we can do with the same bit of physical hardware, we can simulate hundreds of neurons or thousands of neurons, depending on how, far, how much you time multiplex. And a downside of that is that because you're time multiplexing, you have to store the state of every neuron so that next time you come back to do an update of that neuron, you can read it from memory and use the state, update the state, and then write it to memory, and then you do the next. So that must mount up in terms of the amount of memory you're using, right? So the more the more multiplexing you do, the more memory you must have to have locally. So is there memory on the FPGA and is there enough for doing these kinds of operations? So that's one of the bottlenecks. And so that means that one of the things we need to do is quantize the states that we need to store in as few bits as possible. In the original paper, we did this by having only a few bits, say for membrane potentials, say four bits. But if you have that few bits in a fixed point number of representation, it's very hard to do exponential decays, which is what you'd want for a leaky integrator, like a leaky integrator and fire neuron. And so we came up with a way to do the decay stochastically. So every update step, you have a probability of decaying. If you do decay, you decay by one bit count. So it's actually quite a step change in the membrane potential. But you could have a very low probability of doing that. So then you have an expected decay time that is still the same as if you would do an, an exponential decay, similar to radioactive decay, basically. That works pretty well. It makes the networks behave a little different than you would have if you had just an exponential equation implemented because it now becomes stochastic. But that also had the advantage that different digital neurons that were implemented by the same circuit could have the same initial conditions, but still behave differently because their updates were probabilistic now. So they, you, you wouldn't have to decouple them explicitly or add noise to your system or something to do that. More recently, not in that paper, but we've started looking at mini floats. Mini floats are floating point numbers, but with very few bits, like four bit or eight bit ones, where you use only eight bits to, to do a floating point number. And that makes it behave a little bit more traditionally, I'd want to say, like you expect the exponential decays to go. And these floating point numbers, these low bit floating point numbers, they've become popular again, because of artificial neural networks. One of the other things that's biologically based in your new FPGA system that you're building is that the way it is structured 
is hierarchical in order to maintain locality among nearest neighbor neurons, because locality is a really important neuromorphic principle, because it means that you can minimize the length of connections, because on electronics, long connections, and in biology, I guess, long connections start to cause lots of problems. Can you talk about that architecture and about the biological inspiration for it? Sure. So that connectivity was really another problem for us at the start of this project. Memory is a bottleneck in terms of storing the states, but communication is another real bottleneck for these large-scale systems because a lot of it is communication. And when you look at a brain, a lot of it is white matter. It's the, the wiring between neurons. That, uh, and the brain does that in 3D, but on hardware, we don't necessarily have that uh, option to do that. So we took inspiration from some of the motifs you see in cortex, where you have dense connectivity locally. If you slice vertically through the cortex, you'll have various layers in cortex, layers one to, to six, typically. And neurons in that, about a hundred neurons or so, in are what they call a mini column. And they wire very densely together. And then you have multiple mini columns that are sitting next to each other that wire quite densely together, but less densely than in one mini column. And then you get larger brain areas, you know, uh, V1 for visual cortex, V2 for a higher part of visual cortex, and they connect less densely. And then the, the further you get away, the less they connect or the less dense they connect. And so we're using a similar structure for this, where we have some hierarchical connectivity. So things that are not physically next to each other on the chip, but that are in, in address space, basically, that are next to each other have dense connectivity. And things that are further away uh, might have to go up a layer um, in order to con communicate with each other at a layer higher, and then come down where they need to communicate. And those that connectivities should be less dense. So who's going to use this machine and what are they going to do with it once you've built it? That's an excellent question. I hope everybody or everybody interested in simulating large-scale spiking neural networks. It's been a real problem in the field, I feel, that it's been so hard to simulate spiking neural networks at large scale to discover the properties of these networks and study them and figure out what plasticity and what architecture works well, similarly to convolutional neural networks, deep neural networks, where it took a while to, and to have the hardware to be able to figure out how do we use this properly and how do we make this work. And so that's not just us in my lab or in my center that will do that research. I hope that we'll make it available to researchers worldwide, and I hope that they will join in the efforts to try and study this. A problem, for instance, with spiking neural networks is you cannot take a network that has neurons in it, like neurons in cortex often have 10,000 inputs or so on, on that order. And you cannot take a network with 100,000 of these, with 10,000 inputs each, and say, I'm going to scale that down by a factor of 1,000 and give them only 10 inputs, but I'm going to make each input a thousand times stronger. 
that is not going to give you the same dynamics in a spiking neural network. So if you did it with analog signals, it would maybe work better. But with spiking signals, that really doesn't work. So you get very different behavior. So you need to simulate them at these large scales, I think, to really study them properly. Do you have a name for it, by the way? Not really. The original design we call Deep South in response to True North. But True North now is getting really old um, and is not really that active anymore. So we need to come up with a better system. But it was Deep South because we're based in Australia, down under. Uh, so it was a, was a nice balance to the True North. So the new FPGA machine, it's essentially a simulator. So although you could use it to solve problems in its own right, right, you could use it as a machine to do stuff, that's actually not its intention. The main intention is to understand the principles and to optimize models that could then be built in a next generation of optimized, small, power-efficient hardware to do those things in all sorts of applications, right? So this is almost like an intermediate step, an experimental platform, much in the same way that Spinnaker and Luigi are intermediate steps and experimental platforms. Absolutely. We just think that this platform based on FPGAs provides more flexibility for this intermediate step to figure out what is it that we actually want on a system before you distill that down into a really efficient, low-power chip, if that's what you need. Also, the design is modular, so we can make really large systems, or you can use one FPGA and use a smaller system that you'd want on a robot or on a drone or something like that to do the processing locally. So you can scale up and down with this system as well, in theory, all the way to human brain-level computation and beyond in terms of the number of operations per second that you're doing. Now, this is a long-term project that you're sort of at the beginning of, right? As I understand it, you've done some proof of concept, first iteration of your design, but, but you've got quite a bit of work to do to get to what you've just described. Am I right? Yes, but we've made a fair bit of progress behind the curtains, I guess. And so we are looking to build a system that can do human brain scale number of operations per second this year using commercially available FPGAs. That system hopefully will exist at the end of the year. Then it's a matter of making it also user friendly because we don't want people to have to do FPGA programming to use the system. So it's a matter of providing software interface, user interface that allows people to specify the networks that they want on it. That might take a little bit longer to be ready for people to use, but I hope that we'll be pretty far on that next year. And again, I hope that we'll do that in an open source way with contributions from a global community. And then even longer term aspect of it is, is if you have that data of a billion neurons in your spiking neural network, how do you analyze that data? And that's an interesting research question. How do you visualize that? And those are clear areas where we're going to need help because I don't really know the answer to those questions. 
And I noticed, because we're recording this at the Capocaccia Neuromorphic Workshop, I noticed you're looking for postdocs and people to come and help you in this endeavor. Yes, the more the merrier, basically. And we have positions open in Sydney pretty much constantly. It's just hard to find the number of people that we need for these efforts. And we're in an interesting time at the moment in neuromorphic engineering where funding is easier to get than people. And that hasn't always been the case. But there's a lot of interest from industry, defense, all those non-academic players in neuromorphic engineering and what can it do. That's been a real change over the years. It used to always be, I had to explain first coming through the door to somebody what neuromorphic engineering was. Whereas now company representatives contact me and ask, about what can neuromorphic engineering do for them or how can we collaborate? And that's a massive change that has happened over the last five years. So you're expecting that by the end of, certainly by the end of 2024, you would have people in different labs around the globe playing with your machine in the cloud, essentially? Absolutely, yes. And presumably because it's commercially based FPGAs, they could, if they wanted to have a local one, they could do that very simply as well, right? So if, you're, if that's your goal. The funding, I can buy one FPGA or a few FPGAs. These are high-end FPGAs, so they are about $10,000 each. So it's not something that everybody will buy, but at the same time, as a university piece of equipment, buying several of them is possible, obviously. And our system will cost several million dollars to put it, all the hardware together. That's a lot of money, but at the same time, it's not impossible for somebody to replicate somewhere else if they realize they need a system at their university or at their company. So how many chips will be on the version of the system that you're building right now? A bit over 100 FPGAs will be on that system. Wow, that is quite ambitious. So we'll make sure to post something when it actually comes online. That'll be fascinating to watch. I wanted to finish by asking you, you've been involved with this field for a long time, as we've established since the late 80s, which is more or less when the whole field began. So I wanted to ask you, what is it that inspires you now? And how do you feel that's different from when you first got into the field? So when I first got into the field, there was, apart from doing cool engineering and being interested in how biology does computation and trying to figure out how we can implement that, there was also a real drive to understand the brain. That's still there, and I don't feel I have made massive progress on understanding the brain in, in 30 years. We've learned various bits, but I still don't know how it all works. You know, What inspires me at the moment is also what scares me a, a bit, and that is what I alluded to before. There is a real interest in what can neuromorphic engineering practically do. And that gives us great opportunities to show what it can do. But it also carries the risk that if we don't show anything, people will say it's 
promises and there is no applications coming out of it. So that's both my inspiration and my worry um, that we need to really concentrate on getting some applications of neuromorphic engineering out there showing, yes, taking inspiration from neural systems in biology to do your computation can really give you efficient solutions. And that's what we're trying to do. For instance, that's what the AstroSight system is aiming to do as an example. Now, I don't want to encourage you to become a betting man, but you talked about applications. Looking forward over the next 10, 15 years, that kind of time scale, which are the ones that you think are most likely to have neuromorphic elements to them before the likes of you and I retire? <laughs> the most safe bet for me would be neuromorphic vision systems. Sensing in a larger term too, but vision systems are the ones that are developed the furthest. And I think there'll be a fair bit of development in that area. At the moment, we use event cameras, as I described earlier. They're only one form of camera, of neuromorphic camera. All each pixel does is detect changes in time. Biological retinas also look at spatial processing, what are the neighboring photoreceptors doing? That's not in these cameras. We can try and build that in. An advantage of the current camera is that if you keep the camera still, only things that move will generate changes and therefore you automatically extract things that move. But if you start moving the camera, everything changes all the time, which is actually a disadvantage for the cameras. We can build cameras that try and compensate for these things. We can build cameras that don't just use visible light, but that do infrared or ultraviolet or hyperspectral versions of these cameras. So there's a whole range in applications in sensing, vision sensing in particular, but we're also doing work in the lab on audio, on olfaction, smell. I'm interested in tactile. I'm interested in electric sense of the shark or radar or neuromorphic versions of that. So I think there we'll see a lot of first applications happening. I'm hopeful that we will get applications out of neuromorphic computation with spiking neural networks and with the system that we do, that it inspires stuff. And we saw that with the GPUs, it reinvigorated the field. And once you have a critical mass, things are going really, really fast and, and then snowball. And the progress has been so fast over the last decade in deep neural networks that we might trigger that in spiking neural networks, but that's much harder to predict. So I wouldn't want to bet on that. Andre von Scheich, thank you so much for coming on to Brains and Machines. My pleasure. Thanks, Sunny, for this interview. It was very interesting. And just to remind everyone, more information about Andre's work is available at our website, brainsandmachines.net. Do check it out. Now, we have Ralph Etienne Cummings joining us to discuss what we just heard. Welcome to Brains and Machines. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Sunny and Julia. So one thing that actually caught my attention is the fact that what neuromorphic means changed radically from the very start, from the 80s. So I'm very curious to know your point of view and what changed, in your opinion. 
Yeah, so definitely, and Andre speaks to this, right? It indicates that from the olden days, if you will, what constituted neuromorphic system is very different from what constituted a neuromorphic system now. For example, back in the day, a neuromorphic system had to be hardware, had to be analog, had to mimic parsimoniously as possible the, the biological system that's being modeled. Today, we have the various models like the Deep South that Andre speaks about, which is strictly a digital system. Back then, that would not have been considered to be neuromorphic. So uh, reflecting back on the example that Andre gave as a first neuromorphic commercial system, which is the uh, optical mouse, the uh, trackball mouse that he talks about, if you think about the optical mouse that came through Agilent and Avago, that one also used correlation, also used measurement of motion, also used optimization to figure out how things move. And back then, that would not have been considered to be neuromorphic because it didn't have all the bells and whistles of, of what we considered to be neuromorphic. But today, looking back, it would actually fall in the neuromorphic case. So with that back view, if you will, I would say that the most commercially successful neuromorphic system was probably the mouse, but maybe not the Logitech mouse, but the optical mouse. The word neuromorphic has moved sufficiently such that the tail of the word now covers a whole bunch of things that we, back in the 90s, late 80s, would not have thought to be neuromorphic. That's what I'm arguing. That's really interesting. Thanks, Ralph. I understand you also had a little bit of a quibble about the way Andre describes the use of event cameras. Would you like to say more about that? Sure. Not so much as the use, but as how the events are generated, or how the events are, are constructed. So Andre, I think if I remember correctly, he says something like, there's no integration of light and therefore the systems can be extremely fast and measure change and whatnot. But in reality, all cameras do some form of integration. In fact, if you look at the same cameras are being used by the astrocyte system and other people in the field, there is an integrated. The big difference is in the pixel, there's a massive gain. So you don't need to integrate a long distance before you create an event. So the first thing is how does event get generated? Where they get generated by having a massive gain in the pixel. The second thing is you need to be able to measure change. So if you look at the same amount of light, you see it twice, then that should be no change, right? But if there's a change between the last time you looked at that piece of the sky and now, then that's when you create an event. So, the, so there has to be memory in the pixel as well, right? And the way that this memory is generated, is created is different in different systems, but it's a piece of it. So to say that it's instantaneous or it's extremely fast for that because of the integration is probably a little bit not accurate. But there are a sort of other types of photodetectors that can do that, right? And these are what I call SPADs, where they can measure single photons, right? But I don't know of an event-based camera that can do that yet. So if we had a means of kind of meshing together the memory element with the super sensitive pixel and a way to actually, you know, measure change in flux of photons, that would be a really cool event-based camera. So when he's speaking about what does the next event-based camera looks like in terms of looking at infrared, hyperspectrum, and so on, I would also like to add in there these avalanche photodetectors as, as another mechanism to do so. Just a quick note, if people want to find out more about the Astrocyte project, 
They can read an article I wrote for EE Times when it won the Mahawald Prize. We'll have a link to that on the brainsandmachines.net website. Moving on, Ralph, what did you think of the Deep South project? Yeah, no, I think it's a really cool project. I think there's a place for it. I always like to, to put it in perspective in terms of how folks have thought about this type of you know, FPGA-based systems in the past. It's ironic that the Deep South is supposed to be the opposite to the True North system, but the person who did the first FPGA-based large-scale neural system was actually the True North developer, Andrew Cassidy. And there's papers that we can look at that. So the benefit is scale, right? Ideally, they want to do a human brain scale type of uh, modeling, and that's going to be interesting. Ultimately, if you're going to do a, a brain scale model that's going to be realistic, you're going to have to make your models of the neurons or the synapses astrocytes, but this is not different astrocytes. This is actual cells in the brain, right? All of those have to be modeled in some way. And the more complexity you add, then the more hardware it takes to implement. So you start questioning whether or not the implementation in FPGA is actually the best way to go. Whereas if you look at Spinnaker and other processor-based uh, multi-processor systems that can also implement neurons and models and so on, they have much more flexibility because, you know, it's part of the programming fabric. Whereas in the case of the FPGA system, it's more in the hardware fabric. So where is that trade-off? Where is the place where you get the benefit from one versus the other? That's an interesting question that I think is an open one at this point. Absolutely. Julia? Yeah, it has been a big problem, for example, just in my small little case for me, just trying to understand what's the trade-off, especially working with vision, because if you only want the first layer to resemble the number of pixels that you have in the visual field, you explode with the number of neurons and that's it, it's done. You can't do more in terms of number of neurons. Talking about modeling neurons, I understand you had some thoughts on this, Ralph? Yeah, to create any kind of large-scale model of, of cortex, you need multiple things, right? You need neurons, a model of a neuron, you need model of synapses, and then, of course, you need a learning element to it as well, right? Um, so the model of the neuron one is probably the easiest from perspective of we know a lot about how to capture the various dynamics of the neuron behavior, right? So, you know, you can go to Zikovich and look at his rendition of the different ways to capture the 20 faces of a neuron. Yeah. Or you can use the Mihalis Niebuhr model, and there are trade-offs in terms of complexities, in terms of the use of hardware. So the implementation with FPGA, we've seen examples of that, again, having published in the literature of how to implement various models of, of neurons. The places that I still think is still hard is how to make large networks of these systems and how to take advantage of the synaptic dynamics and learning and so on. Those are still hard to do. And I don't necessarily understand the entire environment to understand how Deep South provides these kinds of capabilities beyond the modeling of the neuron as, a, as writing equations for it. Julia, do you have any final thoughts? We also need to understand how to really create networks that are capable as the brain to create different layers, for example, like hypercolumns I'm talking about. That is like another level of complexity that is very difficult to be explored and developed now with these systems. 
I know that Andre is looking at a microcolumn architecture in terms of what it simulates. And of course, this is only a simulation. But I think that what you both said during the course of this discussion is this trade-off that I think we're going to come back to again and again in the podcast. The trade-off between simulation and the freedom that software-based systems can offer you in terms of experimenting with different models, changing things in the fly, and efficiency, which is a whole different ballgame, which is making things that are very specific to do exactly what you want them to do as cleanly and energy efficiently as is possible. And that's something we're not going to solve today in this discussion. That's something we're going to come back to and see echoed, I think, in the work of lots of other people we talk to in this field. One of Andre's big points is that this is going to be something that people from around the world can tap into and use it. So it's a kind of the sharing aspects of it. And I think it's important to point out that that is a big positive, right? You know, if, if multiple people from different ways of thinking can take advantage of this hardware and implement their models in the way that they think is optimal and can have timeshare on it, right? then that will be great. And also the fact that it can be replicated at your own site with, of course, investment that's associated with it. That's also another great thing. So essentially we are crowdsourcing the system and that would be an excellent uh, positive model. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. My one caveat would be, what are we going to use to program this thing? One of the problems I've noticed in talking to researchers about their work is that they often say, oh, it's a great chip, it's a great platform, but it's a nightmare to program and it's always changing. And they just upgraded it and now it's broken. And these kinds of issues really matter to engineers. So it has to be a long-term project where they're looking at all aspects of getting people involved. One of the things I think Intel has done very well is really trying to have a community around their technology, the Luihi platform. Now, I'm not saying they've solved all the problems of having things that are easy to program, but that kind of approach where you know who's trying to use your system, you're trying to bring them into the fold, talk to them, figure out what their problems are. If you don't do that, then there's no way you can solve these problems. I'm not saying it's enough to solve this problem in itself, but it's a necessary first step. Julia. Yeah, this brings me to another huge problem that we have that I encountered talking to other people, to colleagues that want to join our community, want to know more, right? Like people that are working on deep learning or classical computer vision, machine learning methods and et cetera. And they want to approach to us, but they don't know how, because we have different platforms in terms of hardware, software. We don't know what goes with it. And it's very difficult to understand for them where to start and what to use as first and how to simulate. Easily, they have no idea how to simulate a network and where to sim- to actually implement that network on the real hardware. Yeah, the last part of, of this whole thing, I think, goes back to the differences between a hardware programmable system like an FPGA versus a software programmable system like Spinnaker or some other processor-based multiprocessor system. And that is that with the processor-based multiple system, we know how to program those guys, right? We have C, we have Python and whatnot. 
But with a hardware one, it's not so trivial. And there has to be that layer that links between the application space and the, and the hardware implementation space. And that layer still doesn't quite exist. And how do we make that exist? Uh, without that, it's going to be hard for the dream that Andre has to have people from all over the world actually use their system. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for the interesting discussion, and we'll see you next time. Oh, and one more thing before we go. In the next episode, I'll be talking to chip designer and neuromodeler, Professor Elisabetta Kika from the University of Groningen. Among other things, she'll be talking about memristors and learning in neuromorphic chips. Until then, you can find out more at brainsandmachines.net. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Professor Andre von Scheich from Western Sydney University. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.